sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message. Well, um, it's so good to be with you tonight again. Like Andre said, we're busy with a series, a two-part series called Ancient Christian Worship. And um, I shared this morning about the fact that um, we stand on the shoulders of those who have worshipped before, those who have seeked God before, those who have um, been in His presence before, um, and the fact that we are part of a legacy of worshippers. And uh, what I said this morning was that uh, I'm one of those people that likes to go and look for the origin, to search for the real thing. What did it look like in the beginning? Because that's normally what happens. Something amazing gets started and then us humans, we come and mess it up. You know, with our own ideas and our own perceptions of how things should be. And so I've also done a bit of reading of the history of the church and man, <laughs> how, we've, uh, how we've messed up things, you know, by, by bringing our own church and man-made institutions into what God originally designed. And so what we looked at this morning was, um, basically a snapshot of the earliest years of Christian worship. Those first few years, those first few decades of when Christ was first worshipped. So what I said this morning is there were six areas, six areas of uh, Christian worship that I want us to, to look at. Let's flight those six areas there quickly. Hymns, songs, declarations, invocations, prophecy, Prayer, baptism, communion. This morning we focused on the earliest song, the earliest song to Jesus. We said in Philippians 2 is regarded as the, the earliest song. And we, we tried to look at what can we learn about their worship in those earliest days. We looked at declarations and the role of declarations um, in worship. I said to you, Andre will teach you about prophecy in worship. Tonight I'm wanting to share around prayer and communion. Are you ready for this? Man, let's get slightly more excited. Are you ready for this? There we go. There we go. Okay, so prayer. How does prayer fit into, into worship? And uh, I had the privilege of uh, trying to rewrite a prayer module a while back uh, for our Bible school. And uh, I don't think I did really good because I think Tienz is rewriting it again. But the point is I had this amazing time of discovering prayer for myself. And in studying prayer... Um, once again, I realized that um, there are a couple of people that have said amazing things about prayer. The first guy that I had a look at was St. Augustine, uh, who had incredible insights around prayer. The second uh, amazing man of God that I studied was Martin Luther, uh, that also shared wonderful insights around prayer. But it's amazing, they both pointed back to the ultimate masterclass on prayer. And that's Jesus. So there was one day when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us how to, to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus teaches on prayer. Um, and let's quickly have a look at that in Matthew uh, 6 there. I'm going to read that for us. I call it the perfect prayer. Matthew 6, 9 to 13 says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Everyone say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And um, what Luther and what St. Augustine said is, we can say a lot about prayer, but actually the best teaching, the best insight around prayer that you will ever receive is when Jesus taught us how to pray. And I suppose it shouldn't be a surprise when the Lord um, gives us the, the perfect prayer. And um, since that time, it's about three years ago, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't pray this prayer. It's become part of my, my ritual in the morning. And uh, I prayed in intercession. I, I, I prayed on a daily basis because I know when I'm, when I'm praying that, I think one of your leaders spoke just now about, about praying perfectly in the Spirit. Or when you're praying in, in, in English, this is probably the closest you can get to praying the will of God. And I'm wanting just to, for a few seconds, just to, to stand still around, just two or three of the concepts in this prayer. And I think we could spend a whole sermon on this, but we're not, we're not going to. We're just going to look at the beginning and the end. And it starts off with the acknowledgement that we have a Father. And that He's not just my Father. Amen. He's our Father. So the way we commune and communicate with God is through relationship. And it's a very specific relationship. It's the relationship of children to a father. Jesus could have started this prayer in a, in a whole lot of different ways. He could have said, come before Him kneeling and bowing and declare the Lord and Almighty King. What He's done, that He's created the heavens and the earth, that He's omnipresent, omnipotent, that He's powerful, that He's done all these incredible things. Yet, He chooses the completely different route. He chooses the relational route. I told Andre yesterday, um, my little study there at home where we're staying at, it's, it's uh, become a place where I'm spending a lot of time. And uh, in the mornings, my kids, they know where to find me. I'm normally up before the rest of the family and I'm there in my study. And the Lord really speaks to me <laughs> through, through my children. And uh, I love the way how they just unannounced, they don't knock on the door, they just come in. And it's not like they say, Dad, are you busy with an assignment and are you trying to string some complicated concept together? And sorry, can I interrupt? No, man. They just come to the, to the room and they just climb onto my lap and they just, come, they just come sit and they just lie on my chest. First thing in the morning. And I love that because they know they can do that because I'm their father. And so we get slightly complicated God, around God and I said to, to my congregation a week or two ago, you know, I've been a Christian a long time. And it's amazing as the years go by, it's like I'm getting this sonship thing more and more. And the Lord is taking me deeper and deeper into, into the revelation of what it means to be a son in the house. And it's not like I had a disadvantage or a bad start in life. In fact, I have an incredible dad. You know, it's not, it's not like I took a knock in life and, and um, you know, I was molested or anything that I would have a father wound. It's, it's like you really think I should, I should have it by now. And, and I shared with the church, like, for many years, I don't know why, I've, I've just got the whole Lord thing and my position relative to, to God and that he's, he's master and that He's Lord and that He's in charge and that He's the King of the Kingdom. And I, I get that whole response to him and I'm like, yeah boss, 
Nearbos, Uwachbos. I get that thing. It's, it's just come naturally to me. So for, for years I've just prayed to Jesus as my Lord and to God as my Lord and to, and to, you know, to God as the one who's, who's powerful. But, but for some reason I've missed the, the, the Father approach. I've missed the door that, that's a lot more relaxed. And it's not like we get buddy-buddy with Jesus. There's always the friendship and the fear, but, but there's just something when we approach God relationally, the way He intended us to. And I tell you, it's changed my life. After being, how old am I now? 43. <laughs> and, uh, and this year, it feels like for the first time, the lights are going on for me. And, I, and I, I've been battling through this and, and the Lord's just, He's just revealing to me how I need to come to Him in worship and in prayer. And, and this is the way He says, come to me. When you speak to me, speak to me as your Father. As your Father. The second part of this perfect prayer is that it starts off with worship. So we acknowledge who He is. He's, he's our Father. He's, he's in heaven. And then we start with worship. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. That word hallowed means holy is your name. And I don't want to say too much about, about prayer tonight, but the perfect prayer starts with worship and it ends with worship. Hallowed be your name. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let it be so. So for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So Jesus starts the perfect prayer with acknowledging the, the relational root. That his name is hallowed. And then he packs a whole lot of stuff in there that we don't have time to focus on tonight. And then he ends it off with worship. Acknowledgement. For yours. For yours is the kingdom. For yours is the power. For yours is the glory forever and ever. Why would Jesus be saying that? You're allowed to speak to me. Why would Jesus be saying that? It's true. Amen. That's a good start. Yes. To give God the glory. Yes. Why? 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 Why would Jesus want to make sure that God gets the glory? Because He's awesome. Yes. Come on, you guys are quiet over here. Why is Jesus saying this? Yes, yes, Conrad. He's the closest tonight. Give that man, I don't know, something. <laughs> we don't give bells in this church, just tinker bells. <laughs> The reason why Jesus is saying, for yours is the glory, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, because those are the things we chase after as humans. Think about it. We get born, we go to school, and when you get taught at school, you get, you get taught to, to study hard so that you can get a good job, so that you can build a company, so that you can build some kind of empire. And for many men and many women, that's what their lives amount to building their own kingdom, seeking their own glory. Power, glory, fame. That's what we're conditioned to chase after in this world. Just, I mean, look at, 
these soccer players, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to pick on the soccer players tonight because um, that would be unfair, but they get really excited when they score a goal, okay? So if you think of, uh, let's, let's say, who's the best soccer player in the world? Come on, help me out, yeah. Messi. So when Messi, when Messi scores a goal, what does he do? Because they've all got their moves. It normally ends up on a slide on their knees, and they're like, there's a, there's a stadium, and they're just like, come on, yes, more, more, lay it on, lay it on. We as humans, oh, I forgot, then they start jumping on each other. <laughs> oh, it's amazing these guys don't get injured, you know, because it's like 11 guys on top of you, it's crazy. But in any case, we're conditioned to seek the glory. We're conditioned to chase after these things. And Jesus is saying, you want to pray the perfect prayer? Give it away to the one who deserves it. So how does prayer fit into worship? Well, we could spend a lot of time on it. But let's just take Jesus' model prayer. It starts off with worship. It ends in worship. And he says, this is where the glory goes. This is where the power goes. And let's make no mistake. This is where the real kingdom goes belongs to God be the glory the kingdom the power forever and ever amen amen so let's move on to our second and final point that I want to touch on tonight is communion and I asked my church a while back why do we have communion why do we have church and I got some interesting answers wasn't quite the answers I was expecting but but the reason why we have church it's because it's God's idea. Jesus said to Peter, he challenged his, his disciples, says, what's the word on the street? Who do they say I am? And the disciples said, some say you, you Elijah, some say you this prophet. Jesus, they're saying you're one of the prophets. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, but who do you say I am? And Peter, by the revelation of God, says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, bless you, Simon. Upon this revelation that I am the Messiah, I will build my church. You see, we think that we're building church. And actually, we're invited to build church with the one who started building his church a long time ago, and that's Jesus. Jesus is building his church. So why do we have church? Because Jesus believes in church. Jesus has decided that we will be the living stones that He places together and knits together. It says, you will be in Shofar East London. And you know what? You will also go and serve in Shofar East London. And you will serve Andre and Sonica. And you will build a wall for my glory. And the Holy Spirit will be your reward as you build the spiritual wall for me. So Jesus is building His church. So, so why communion? Communion is one of the closest ways we can identify with Christ. And I'm wanting to share a couple of scriptures with you. Uh, the first one is in Luke 22. Let's read that together. It says, When the hour had come, He sat down and the twelve apostles with Him. Then He said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
and he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup off the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Let's just go up to the top there again. So the context here of Luke chapter 22 is Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem and it's the Passover feast. And he says to his disciples, go ahead and you will meet a man who will take you to an upper room and there we will have this meal together, this Passover feast. And eventually they have this meal together. Let's just go to that next slide quickly. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, says, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Also takes the cup. Think this is, this is the cup, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So I'm, I'm speaking about communion tonight, and I'm wanting us just to stand still for a second and reflect on what communion means. Why, why do we have this thing called communion. There's this little joke. Um, it's mostly a Cape Town joke. But uh, there's two guys that go to, uh, to church, but they're Afrikaans. And uh, they go to, to, the, uh, to the church and the, the, the pastor serves the communion. And the, the pastor says, drink and be thankful. And the one says to the other, Hey, what did I say? The one says, Drink, there's no thanks for. <laughs> but what I realized is, not everybody understands the significance and the power of communion. And why is it that we've perhaps Lost communion as part of our modern worship expression. Because what I can tell you is it was very much part of early Christian worship. In fact, if there was one thing that you would find before a lot of singing, and there's nothing wrong with singing. Singing is all over the Bible. But in earliest Christian worship, the thing that they really did, if you go and read Acts, they went from house to house breaking bread celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion. And so what I realized was that not everybody understands communion. And as I shared this word a week or two ago at my church, I remember speaking to my wife and, and she asked me, what are you preaching about tomorrow? And I said, communion. She said, we're driving home to, to France. She says, okay, well, tell me what you're going to say. And uh, I started sharing it with her, and, and after a while I realized that, that she wasn't getting what I was trying to say. And I'm like, praise the Lord, I'm speaking to you before tomorrow, because if you're not getting it, they're not going to get it. So tell me, what, what is it that you're not understanding? She says, I don't understand why we do this. And that's what I'm trusting the Lord to, to highlight to us, is, is the why of the bread and the why of the cup. And so Jesus is saying here, this cup is the new covenant. So we often think of the cup as the blood, the shed blood of Jesus. But Jesus is actually saying this is something else. This is, this is my blood that you drink. And remember, often he would say to them, unless you eat my flesh 
and you drink my blood, you have no part in me. And he offends a whole lot of people. And they're like, oh, how can you say that? Jesus? How can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? And he offends it. You know, you had a crowd and then he's just got a few people. And then he looks at his disciples and says, are you also going to leave now? But they weren't getting what he was trying to say. And so we think the, the bread and the cup is, is relatively simple. But actually it's, it's quite complex for a lot of people to understand. And for a lot of people it's just become ritual. That's something we do once a month or, you know, when we come together. But what is the significance around this? And what is the role of the bread and the wine in our worship? And Jesus is saying, this cup is not just my blood. This is something I call the new covenant. Everyone say new covenant. If there's a new covenant, there was a? Come on, you can do better. If there was a new covenant, there was a? Old covenant. So what we're seeing right here is a really important moment in history. Jesus has preached, he's taught, he's delivered, he's healed people He's walked two or three years with his disciples and he's coming to the end of his earthly life and he knows it, but they don't know it. And they get to this feast that they celebrate each year and they've been celebrating it for two or three thousand years because God told them in the desert that this is what I want you to do. I want you to celebrate the Passover. So what they are having is they're celebrating the Passover. What's the Passover? Well, it's a time way back when God delivered them from Egypt. And He said, I want you to celebrate this each year. I want you to come together and I want you to eat this meal together. Awesome. Hey kids, don't you love them? Praise the Lord. Go for it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I must just tell you this story. My son, about a year ago, I'm busy preaching, eh? It's like it's like this, and I'm I'm in this deep moment in my sermon. And our church isn't as spacious as yours. We've got kind of like a long, narrow hall. And in the middle of the sermon, he walks all the way from the front, to, from the back to the front, and you can just kind of hear a pin drop, and everybody's wondering how I'm going to respond. And he comes to me, say, "Papa, what's my sword?" <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a sermon I was doing a sermon on the word of God and I, I'd borrowed his little sword for a prop and he's like where's my sword and I was like yeah boy you can go now <laughs> but kids they're just, they're just so free eh? they just know it's my dad you know? and then we get all complicated and we think we have to jump through 50 hoops to come in here and be acceptable before God and he says no 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 when I look at you, I see Jesus in between us. You can come. You know, we get so, so religious with, with God. And He just wants us to come as children to Him. So we're talking about this, this new covenant. And, and Jesus is saying this is a defining moment, disciples. For 2,000 years, every year, you celebrate the old covenant. Things are about to change. And it changes with this. It changes with the bread. It changes with the cup. This cup of my blood is the new covenant. They didn't get it then. They would get it in time to come. And so this is Luke chapter 22. We pick up the story two chapters later and the passion of the Christ is just played out. 
And everything that they didn't expect happened. And Luke lets us in on this beautiful little story in Luke 24, where Jesus, like I said, has died, the unexpected death, and then he rose again, just like he said he would, but they still didn't believe that he was risen. Mary and Martha, other ladies, they run to the tomb that early that morning, run back to the other disciples. The other disciple says, you are smoking something. There, it's, there can be no way. Peter and John run to an empty tomb. And so word slowly starts getting out that the grave is empty. And so there's these two disciples that are walking on the same day. They're walking from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And the Bible says the distance is 11 kilometers from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're talking. And these guys are suffering from bomb shock around what had just happened. And they traumatized. And we, the reason why we know they traumatized is because Jesus joins them. But the word says they're not allowed to actually know that it's Jesus. So they think it's some stranger that's taking the, the journey with them. And Jesus asked them, why are you so down? Why are you so sad? And they, they respond to Jesus like this. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem this weekend? Do you not know what's just gone down? He says, no, tell me. And they say, this Jesus of Nazareth, that our chief priest crucified, and we had hoped that he would deliver Israel from the oppression of the Romans. And they are down, man. They, they're down in the dumps, and they, they're walking these 11 kilometers. I went and Googled, how long does it take, or how far, or how long does it take to walk 11 kilometers? It depends how fit you are. Okay, but if you if you relatively fit, you you walk five k's in about an hour. This is what Google says. I don't know. I haven't walked five k's in a while. Okay, but it says it takes about an hour to walk five k's. So say it's just over two hours. Say two and a quarter hours that Jesus is walking with these down, depressed disciples, and eventually he starts expounding the scriptures to them, and they still don't realize that it's Jesus. And they get to Emmaus, and he says, I'm going further. And they say, well, the day is well spent. Why don't you come in and stay with us? And he says, okay, I'll do that. And Jesus starts interacting with his disciples. And then we pick up the story here, Luke 24. It says, now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. They get so excited that they run back to Jerusalem. Okay, it's night time. They just walk two and a quarter hours. They run back to Jerusalem and they go and tell the disciples, the other, other disciples, they say, verse 35, and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. You think we... This is just something insignificant. This was very significant. Not after Jesus died and rose again and went to heaven and the disciples picked up on something that they should celebrate. You see, the Last Supper was not the first supper. The Last Supper happened to be the Last Supper of a whole string of suppers that Jesus had with His disciples. 
I love those sayings there. It says, Jesus was a frequent, significant, and controversial eater. Andrew McGowan says, Jesus was killed because of the way he ate. I thought, come on, that's not true, man. I mean, this guy's got like three PhDs and he's written books on ancient Christian worship. So I decided, okay, let me just investigate this. And I see he's actually gotten a point. Jesus was a significant eater. In fact, he revved the people and he got them all upset because he was always eating with the wrong people. You know, we don't quite appreciate Jewish customs and culture. And man, eating was, it's, it's a very significant part of, of daily life. And, and there are rituals, and your hands got to be washed, and your feet are got to be washed, and the food's got to be blessed, and you eat stuff, and you don't eat certain stuff. And Jesus was, man, he was just going through three years and just defending them. Eating on the days he's not meant to be eating, healing people when he's not meant to be healing. Pastor Andres often says this, man, Jesus was radical. He was radical. He was radical. And so he was a significant eater. And, and perhaps you can say, yes, he was killed because maybe he offended them too many times by hanging out with the people he thought they should not, or they thought he should not be spending time with. If, if he really was a prophet, he would know that this woman He's a woman of the night. He, sh he should not even be around her. Jesus, that's not good for your image. If you really are the son of God, then surely we'd get PR right here. We'd get protocol. We'd, we'd just get some, some social conscience going here if you are the son of God. Jesus said, I'm not, I didn't come for, this. I didn't come for the, the healthy. I came for the sick to seek and save that which is lost. Man, they weren't ready for Jesus. <laughs> I don't even know if we'd be ready for Jesus if he came in our time. And so perhaps Jesus was killed because he ate with the wrong people. And we know in the end he had the last supper with somebody that dipped his hand in the bowl with Jesus. In the end, that guy betrayed him. So maybe McGowan's right. Jesus was killed because of the way he ate. But eating was a significant part of what Jesus did. And what I'm wanting to share with you tonight is that the last supper was the last supper. The supper was the first of a whole string of suppers and meals. And so often we think of communion as this little ritual that we do in church. But the way Jesus instituted it, the way the early disciples celebrated this was, it was actually part of a meal. Okay? It was part of a meal, and part of the meal would be that there would be the breaking of the bread. At the end of the meal, the Gospels, there are three of the Gospels that speak about the Last Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 also speaks about the Last Supper. But normally at the end of the meal, somebody would take the bread and bless it and, and break it, and, and then they would take the cup and share it. And, and that's, that, was, that was the worship service. We would eat together, and then we'd bring Jesus into the meal, and we'd have this together and then somebody would bring a hymn. Somebody would bring a tongue and read Ephesians. Hymn, a psalm, spiritual song. They called it libations, doxologies, liturgies. It was, it was declarations, stuff that they said together. I think they, they said a whole lot of stuff together, more stuff together than we perhaps do. This day. I think we sing a lot more, but they, they also sang. This morning I asked, did they have free worship? Yes, they had free worship. 
creative songs, prophetic songs. It was, it was all part of early Christian worship. But tonight, we're trying to figure out how does communion fit into earliest Christian worship and what does it mean for us today? And should we be changing the way we celebrate communion? That's what I'm sharing about tonight. I want to share another scripture there with you. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writing this say, says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Everyone say, remembrance. In remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after saying, Supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. We've, we've just seen new covenant in Luke. Paul speaking about it as well. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. Till he comes. A couple of things here. When we look at this part of Scripture, Paul's making it clear that this is not his own innovation. He's saying, church in Corinth, I received something, I'm passing it on. I'm delivering it to you. Which means this is pre-Pauline text. This is, like this morning, it's one of the earliest descriptions that we have of ancient worship. And part of ancient worship, like I said this morning, included singing songs about Jesus, but it also included communion. It also included the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So if you want to know how did they worship God in the earliest times, in those first few years after Christ died, well, part of their worship service was communion, the Lord's Supper. About three weeks ago, I'm speaking to a couple that are visiting our church. They're not members in our church. And um, I picked up there were one or two issues with them. I thought, let me be a good dwemini and go do a heispasuk. Go figure out what, what's, what's cooking there, what's pretting there. And um, it's a sensitive conversation and, you know, I'm feeling it out and so are they. And like, you know, what's going on here? Um, and eventually I get to their hearts and, uh, and they say to us, we're not members of your church. We love your church, but we don't actually feel called to be part of a church. And so I could have a really good conversation around why that's a bad idea. And then the, the guy said something to me, and I could have got offended through what he said, but I, I chose not to. He said to me, you know what, Pastor? I really love your sermons. Enjoy your services. We enjoy coming to your services. Just one thing that bothers me about your church. Why do you have communion so seldom? I was like, amen or ouch. <laughs> and what had happened is because they didn't come frequently, they obviously missed the morning when we do have communion. But we, we've only been having communion once a month as a church. But the Lord really spoke to me in that moment and He said, you know what? You're missing out. You're missing out on something that I've designed as part of your coming together. So when Jesus designed 
this kind of this blueprint, this run sheet for our coming together as believers, one of the main things that he had in mind for us to do was to remember him. And so one of the biggest challenges of church is, man, we come together. We're excited about coming together. We're excited about a whole lot of peripheral things. You know, are the new welcome brochures ready? Is, is the sound ready? Is the air cons on? Does it smell all right? Your church smells amazing. Okay? We had some challenges there in France in the early days, but my wife sorted it out, chop, chop. But isn't it amazing how we, we worry about all the other things? You know, have, have they got all sons and daughters playing there? Because that's really welcoming. It's, it's an easy landing for the new visitors. All the things, you know, is the projector right? And it's all the flowers. Who did the flowers this morning? Who's doing easy worship? Oh, goodness, who's leading worship this morning? Who's on drums? You know, it's, it's all these things that we, 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 we think about. Well, maybe not you, but us pastors, we, we battle through these things. And Jesus says, you know, one of the main things that I've designed for you when you come together is that you'd remember me. One of the main ways that we can remember him is through partaking in the bread and the wine. Amen? Amen. The context to what Paul is sharing of here is where church didn't get it right. So the reason why Paul writes to the church in Corinth is because they're hashing up the communion. Let's go to that next slide quickly. The stuff that they're getting wrong. The context is that there's divisions in the church. There's infighting. There's factions. They have the, the communion together, but there's this issue of social standing. There's this issue of shaming those that don't have. And so Paul says, can it be? Paul climbs into them. He says, I hear, I hear that there are people that are going home hungry. I hear, worse than that, that the people coming to the love feast, because they had love feasts together, drunk. He says, brothers, sisters, this is not the idea with the communion. There shouldn't be hungry people. There shouldn't be drunkenness. And what was playing out at this communion table was there was some social economics coming to the fore. What is the other thing that we can learn around communion is God wants it to be inclusive. You see, in, in ancient times, they had the patron system where the owner of the house would place his guests in strategic positions and normally the beggars would end up furthest from the host. Get the worst wine. Perhaps get the cold food. If we want to learn something about coming together and worship, it's meant to be inclusive. No social barriers. Paul's taking on economics here. And he's saying, brothers, it, it, it cannot be like this. There cannot be some that are coming to partake of my meal, some going hungry, while others are stuffed and go home full. We often forget that one of the biggest outflows of worship is social justice. I'll just leave that with you over here. There are times that the Lord speaks to His, his church and He says, You know what, amazing band? You can be quiet now. In fact, right now, it's not melodic in my ears. Put away the guitars, put away the drums. 
Put away your songs. Put away your melodies. What I want right now is streams of social justice. Part of coming together in times of worship is looking out for those that don't have. I want to challenge you as a church who's coming in here that perhaps doesn't look and sound and smell like you. And how are we receiving them in our times of worship? Amen? Amen. I want to close off with this. The big question is, what happens at this table if Jesus is saying that I'm splitting the old covenant and the new covenant with this institution and I want you to do this not once a year, but as often as you come together, it means it's important. So why is it important? What's, what's, going, what's going on? What's playing out when you have the communion as part of worship? And the first thing is remembrance. We saw remembrance in Corinthians. We saw remembrance in Luke. But he's basically saying, this piece of bread is my body. That is broken. I preached this sermon two weeks ago. And at this moment I wanted to play a clip from the Passion of the Christ. The only problem was I forgot how violent the Passion of the Christ was. I forgot how disturbing it was because I watched it ten years ago. And the section that I thought was two minutes long was between 15 and 20 minutes long. It's where they beat Christ. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. I decide maybe it's not an, a good idea to show this clip in my church because I'm maybe going to offend some people. And a lot has changed in the last 10 years. I decide to Google what was the age restriction because I never knew what was the age restriction of the Passion of the Christ. It's 18 start reading comments on the movie The Passion of the Christ and most of the comments are written by kids whose parents allowed them to watch The Passion of the Christ. And the comments are split. Some of them are traumatized saying, I can't believe my parents actually let me watch that. Others are saying, it was hectic but I'm glad I watched it. Breaking the bread is going to mess in the church. Guys, I was in tears. I challenge you to go watch. They call it the scourging scene in the Passion of the Christ. As they beat him and they beat him and they beat him and it got messy. So when we break the bread, that is what we are meant, meant to remember. That it got messy. People are going off on the internet about I can't believe how many liters of blood Mel Gibson used in the making of his movie. Getting offended by blood. How can they expose us to so much blood? Jesus is saying, remember me. If you want an accurate memory of what happened to Jesus, that's what happened. The prophets aren't saying 
for nothing that we can see the bones on his back. He literally got beaten to a pulp. He, he was broke. Jesus, the Son of God, was broken for us. It's not a little wafer we eat. It's not a little cracker. That's to make it convenient for us. So that we can do it in less time. Because most of us need to go somewhere. I'm doing communion differently these days. I'm taking a big piece of bread and I'm breaking it. When I'm breaking it, I'm thinking of that movie. We're a visual generation. I challenge you. Go watch how his body was broken for you. That was meant to be your body. Your sin. Your failure. Your mess. That you made of your life. Your pornography. Your broken marriages. Your wrong choices. Your sin. Like this morning, I said he let go. Perfect God enters our sinful world. And he goes and dies that death. Broken for us. Do this in remembrance of me. I challenge you to take your little cracker. Snap it in half when you get it. Think of Christ's body broken for you. Amen. I tell you, I'm doing communion differently and I'm doing it a lot more often. So I preached on communion. And uh, that week in the small groups, I said to all the small groups, this week we're having a meal together. And at the end of the communion, I want you as small group leaders to stand up, to take a huge piece of bread, to break it, and give thanks. It's called the Eucharist. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. So three things happen when we come around this table. We give thanks. Why do we give thanks? I hope I've convinced you around why we give thanks. That we didn't walk that path. To have eternal life. To have salvation. You see there was something playing out. It's called the drama of salvation. The drama of salvation plays out each time we partake here. Each time we break the bread and drink the cup. We enter into the drama of salvation. The fact that somebody else paid the price that we didn't need to pay. So we're doing things differently now. Wednesday night... I said to my small group, you all bring something to bry. We bried till the cows came home. And at the end, I took a huge piece of bread. And uh, man, they, they, oh, they got into that. These guys got so psyched up. They, one guy went and did research. He says, Jesus ate a lot of fish. So I went and bought a massive fish. And, uh, and they brought this whole fish. And he said, they ate flat bread. So I don't know where he got this flat bread. But he came with his flat bread and his fish. And they were really, really getting into it. But there was this special moment at the end of the evening where normally we would just have ice cream and say, cheers, have a good week. It was lack of catering. Where we invited Christ into the center of our meal and our fellowship. That's what ancient fellowship and Christian worship was about. They ate together. I want to challenge you guys from time to time. Andre can say whether you can do this or not. But have a meal together. And you know what? Don't just have a bride and go home. Have communion as part of your bride. At the end. And make Jesus the center of your fellowship. Make Jesus the center of your remembrance. 
pull him right into your celebration. Man, let him come alive in our times of fellowship. And remember, I tell you, I've been in tears about three or four times this week when I just, when I just think of that movie and I, I think of his, his body crushed for us. We forget. And because we forget, Christ has given us this institution. As often as you come together, remember my broken body, my spilt blood, in remembrance of me. Anything can happen around this table. I want to tell you that tonight. There is nothing more powerful <laughs> than the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus. In you is healing, in you is deliverance, in you is forgiveness, in you is salvation. Man, this is a place of impossibility. Any, anything can happen around this table. I want to encourage you. Start doing stuff around this. Build your lives around this. It's part of your worship. Who's slightly more excited about communion? Amen. 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 Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.